from the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This week, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Curtis Clark. He is a super talented writer. We collaborated on the graphic novel Crossfire and Underfire, but he came up with one of my favorite characters in the Wonderverse, and that's Ovid Gray. He's basically the James Bond of Wonderland. And seriously, my friend Curtis is just brilliant. He's a savant when it comes to all things pop culture. He's got a new graphic novel coming out called Enders, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, collaborating and inspirations for our careers and for creativity, imagination. So Curtis Clark, welcome to the show. Here we are. It's always a pleasure uh, to uh, to chat with you, especially about story and creativity. And I haven't seen you for a while. I, I didn't know that you had uh, such long hair and a beard and looking very distinguished and uh, very 70s, by the way. <laughs> I think Chris Christopherson's my goal here. If I could pull that off, I'd be a happy man. Yeah, well, you're, um, you're getting very close. <laughs> this is this is funny because funny enough, during COVID, all of my friends didn't cut their hair, didn't cut their hair. You know, that's, yeah. they took that time to do it. I shaved my head like a psychopath, just like, just like, <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. It's too hot in the summer. So now I guess I'm playing catch up for that. And maybe this is my midlife crisis as well. I don't know. I'm uh, I, I like short hair as well. My, and my now wife, Teresa was, you know, she's been Friends. bugging me to thank you to go get it cut so i'm gonna get a cut after this podcast so but you couldn't get a cut beforehand yeah i know it but look at i have headsets on and it's thinning no one can tell the difference <laughs> that's that is the one thing i'll say about growing my hair out is like i started to be like wait a second what's going on up here i, I can see through it because it's got yeah. a little length and height to it and i you know never really had that before in my life so i'm like going to my wife i'm like am i am i losing my hair now is this happening already like what's going on yeah you look right at the you know at the crease there see yeah it starts there mm-hmm yeah, well, I have a, a, a my grandpa Bob had a pretty serious widow's peak, so it's okay. It's gonna, it's gonna happen sooner or later. Well, that's a great that's too. a great grandpa Bob is a great place to start because uh, sure. I am very interested in how a man who is as creative as you are, uh, writing television shows, writing comic books, writing movies, deep into the game space, made his way 
from a farm in the Midwest to Hollywood. So Uncle Bob or Uncle Bob, Bob Tarian, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the journey from a farm in what state were you from? I'm from we're neighbors. I'm from Michigan. Michigan, that's right. Michigan. Yeah. So uh to uh to Los Angeles. Were you always a very creative kid? Uh you knew you didn't want to be on the farm or I think she hit the, the, the head of the nail or the nail on the head there. Uh, I have two older brothers, so I should start there. And um, because they're older, six and four years older, I was constantly, you know, watching films and things like that and being introduced to things that were probably not appropriate for me at that age. I was watching Terminator when I was like, you know, six or something like that. I watched, uh, I remember watching Black Rain, which had like a decapitation scene in it <laughs> uh, when I was not old enough to be doing that. And so that introduced me to these things when I was really young. And then at the same time, my brothers were working on the farm and I just couldn't keep up with them. And I think you kind of go two ways when you're young like that. You either get really good at that thing because you have older role models or you get so frustrated because you can't keep up, you do the exact opposite. And so I guess I went the easier route and I did the exact opposite. And that kind of got me away from the farm where I was, you know, that was not going to be my future as much as I love it and respect it and all that kind of stuff. I just, I can drive some machinery. I can wrench on a little bit of stuff. I can pick some rock. That's it. That's well, wait. What, so what, that's the thing that you couldn't keep up with in, in terms of the machinery, the the kind of day labor, uh, the requests from dad. Because he uh, he had a pretty big ranch, right, or a pre- pretty big farm. He farmed a lot of acres at one point. He was about ten thousand acres at his biggest. Wow. Um, we didn't we didn't own that. We rented right. the vast majority of that ground. It's a really really. I mean, as you probably know, extremely difficult business. So uh, I could I would say that. Um, I couldn't keep up with them as laborers, but that wasn't necessarily asked of me. I just didn't, I couldn't keep up with their passion for it. Okay. Like, because they were afforded, you know, they were going to be, my brother Jake ended up taking over the farm, but they were, they were out in front. They were doing things that I wasn't ready to do. And, you know, I just, I just didn't have the same level of interest because everybody in my family was doing it. They were better. They were older at it. So I or better at it. And they were older than me. So I think that my mind was just kind of like, that's not going to be for me. And I was the third son. So I think for my father, it was like there was less of a pressure to sort of make sure that I was also going to be a farmer. You know what I mean? That kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. I mean, it it could go the opposite way. Like there's this basketball player named Ben Wallace that I loved and he had nine older brothers and it turned him into this amazing basketball player built all around heart and hustle and all that kind of stuff because he had older brothers he had to fight with to get on the court. Mm -hmm. And so it goes both ways. Right. Um, but that being said, my older brother, Peter, who's extremely creative and, and part of the reason why I have a lot of the influences I have, you know, he was also working on the farm and doing some of these things. So I kind of gravitated more towards the creative stuff that he was doing than maybe the farm stuff he was also doing. I guess I saw more of a space or an interest for me in that area. So, so just set the scene for me uh, in terms of a dinner conversation or your parents, your brother, when you're you have the life on a farm and then this creativity is it coming from mom dad both of them or who who nurtured it probably my older brother peter the most but i also had the same childhood best friends my entire life i'm still best friends with them these guys mark brian and jake and they were also very nerdy like me so we were constantly bringing new things into each other's lives that way so my my parents would be at the dinner table with my brothers and they'd be talking about the farm or whatever and yada 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 and i was ten thousand miles away hmm. you know i was thinking about playing dungeons and dragons this weekend with my friends or playing final fantasy or playing magic the gathering or 
oh, this comic book I got to go pick up and read, or, you know, I'm halfway through reading, you know, whatever book I'm reading at that time. So I was kind of just, just gone. You know what I mean? Like I would engage and all that kind of stuff. And we lived a very like eighties, nineties thing, like church on Sundays, did that whole thing up until about second grade. And then we stopped going to church. So dinner for us was like, you know, that sort of cliche eighties childhood. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was like, we all sat around the table, big stack of food in the middle, small talk, asking about school, yada, yada, yada. And that was, it was very standard. Like, I wish I had a more interesting thing that way uh, in terms of like a better story to tell you, but it was really, you know, I think it was a little bit of just being the youngest son and being given that, um, that leeway to sort of in- investigate more. And I'd be doing a disservice to this if I didn't say my parents got divorced when I was 11. And okay. so then everything changed. You know what okay. I mean? then, then suddenly you're bouncing between households and all of that. And I bring up my childhood friends because they were a constant through all of that. So they're a huge part of my childhood as well, because they're the thing that never changed. And, and in that conflict with your parents breaking up, did you find yourself taking solace in these games? Because you've mentioned games and books, um, mm-hmm. but you've mentioned, and I think the thing that's nice about games is you're able to really play with your friends and talk about the game mechanics and how it works, where books, you it's solitary and you just fall into the world that you're reading about you can share it after after the fact but the great thing about games and i see this with my own son it's like it's game night with the boys yeah i mean it was it was that and back back when i was a kid you were playing over the internet so we were all getting together sitting in the same room in front yeah. of the television playing a video game or sitting cross-legged on the floor playing magic the gathering or sitting at a table playing dungeon dragons and the other thing about games too like as I would switch between my parents' houses and things like that, they went with me. You know what I mean? So in a lot of ways, you could you could tell some sad story about this kid in his games where like he's taking his little worlds with him because, you know, he's bouncing between his parents' homes. But that's not, my childhood was great. That's not what I'm trying to say. But there's truth that like they went with me. You know what I mean? Like I could take my PlayStation and play Final Fantasy VII. I could play like a, take my Super Nintendo and play Mario Kart. I could bring whatever book I was ripping through right then. I'd bring my binder with all my magic cards, all that kind of stuff. You know, if I had, I had a little wicker basket that had um, comic books in it that, you know, should have been boarded and backed and preserved correctly, but they weren't. <laughs> that would and be worth a book. fortune right now that you could put your kids through college. Oh my God, Frank, no, no BS. And my wife would lose her mind. Well, she knows this. My Magic the Gathering collection that I had in 1997 would be worth about $100,000 right now. Wow. It was wow. crazy. How I mean, many cards or did you know that you had special, some of those special cards, which are. So the back then the market for them hadn't blown up. And so there was a card called a black Lotus. that was worth like $400. Well, it stated that value for a long time. There's a card called ancestral recall. that was worth about 200, 250. And there are these things called dual lands that were worth like five, six, seven, eight, nine dollars. Those dual lands are worth thousands of dollars. Now that ancestral uh, recall that I had, which was a mint beta ancestral recall. I mean, I'd never seen a prettier version of that card is probably could sell for $10,000 or more. Um, it's just, but at the time they weren't, they weren't in the market hadn't, I, mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have cared because I was 14 years old, but you never thought they were going to become what they are now because at the time they had stayed about that value for the life of the game, yeah. which was maybe five or six years. Yeah. And that's a lot of money back then. And so if you it, sold those cards back then, you had been stoked. I, I wish, I wish I had a, a better story for what I did with that money. I think I bought <laughs> clothes because yeah. I wanted to look nicer. And uh, <laughs> I think I turned around and put some of it back into like Hero Clicks, which was the Marvel miniatures game. Oh, uh-oh. And, uh, and the rest of it, I'm sure I just pissed away. So, so your childhood sounds, it, it, it sounds like Stranger Things. How hmm. how how close to uh, Stranger Things? I, I mean, I flashed on those kids downstairs playing. Uh, is that what it was like? 
hundred percent. I mean, it was Michigan basement, you know, you're down there that we had one window in our basement. You could cover it up. It'd be pitch yeah. black. Yeah. We used to play this game called the in the dark game where no joke, we would make it pitch black in our basement. And then we just feel around the ground. And when we found each other, we just beat the crap out of each other and then run away. <laughs> and one time this kid named Vic Preston was in the basement with us. We turned the lights back on and we couldn't figure it out. He had turned all the furniture on its side. And so we got weirded out because we, we didn't know what we were touching and stuff. So you turn it on and everything, the couches were like pillars. And he was hanging off this little um, stool, like bar stool thing. And he just dropped on someone and started punching them. Oh, that is the coolest story ever. That is oh, a yeah. very creative kid. Well, that, but that was my, that was me, Mark, Brian, Vic, like a couple other of my friends, this, this kid, Zach, this kid, Dan. Um, it's just, it was just, you got to remember back then there were like no rules. You know what I mean? And and my parents, again, like to go back to them being split, I was at my dad's house. Well, he was a farmer. He's working like 80 hours a week. So when my friends came over on the weekends, we could do whatever the hell we wanted. Right. You know, we used to <laughs> jump on the trampoline in the backyard, jump off of our roof, my roof onto the trampoline. We'd pick up rocks on the trampoline and throw them at this shed we had in our backyard just leaving knots in it just being dickhead teenage boys and there was you know nothing one one time my dad came in and we were the, the we were the back of the house so you couldn't really see it but he was pulling to the house and we were told not to be on the roof and he ripped around the yard in his truck basically turfing our own yard and got out and started screaming at me because i was stuck on the roof or one of my friends got stuck on the roof so it was so obvious we were doing what we weren't supposed to be doing but then we turn around and did the same thing again tomorrow. Yeah. These are these are these are classic stories. These are these are the kind of stories you do in the Midwest because th there's not a whole lot else to do. So jumping yeah. off a roof onto a trampoline with rocks seems like a really really good idea at the time. <laughs> and it's funny because I've broken both of my wrists three times. My yeah. nose looks like this because I broke it three times. Yeah. So I mean it's you I, I talked to I talked to other people about things like this and I didn't know that it wasn't like that for everybody else. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I had I had I have like 30 first cousins. I think I had six of them in high school with me at the exact same time. Wow. I know people who don't even have six cousins, let alone two cousins. Well, I and had so 52 cousins, my friend, Catholic, 52 cousins. First cousins. First cousins, 52. Like you, were the, you were like the first person I've ever met. Are you guys Irish Catholic? Like, why yeah, well, yeah, so? yeah, partially, yes. So uh, one family had 12, one had 10. We only had four kids, so we were outliers. Yeah, we had three, but we, I mean, my dad was one of 10. My mom only had one sibling. So that's why I guess you got me, you got on both sides, but we, so we founded, or we're, we're so one of the founding families in this place, Eagle, Michigan, there's a road called Clark road named after my family. Oh, wow. Got, okay, cool. I think we're there in 1836 or something like that. And so you don't look you that know, old. <laughs> I, actually, weirdly enough, there's some pictures of my ancestors where like a couple of them look exactly like my brother, Jake, that's like, <laughs> eerie that way. Or my, uh, well, I won't go into this whole road. But anyways, I grew up, you know, with cousins, three different sets of cousins that I could walk to their house across wow. like a barnyard, which was the home my dad was raised in. Right. So this, this friend of mine, his name is John Orphan. Um, he's a director of photography out here. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he went back to take some photos around that area because we want to shoot a movie in my hometown. Mm -hmm. We wrote something to shoot there. Or you read it. The I Green did. Sofa. Yeah, you've been yeah. talking about this for a long time. A little indie. Well, I wrote movie. it during COVID, so. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't do anything with it but he goes and john goes there and he's like man you had like a a totally idyllic childhood and i was like did i you know, i didn't realize and it couldn't have been more different than his but it was it was all that but it was a bubble you yeah. know what i mean yeah it was we, a total bubble. 
we had the exact same uh, childhood because, you know, I grew up uh, outside of Minneapolis, which was all farm country around us. And we grew up on this really beautiful lake, which was idyllic every single day, even in the dead of winter. And in the dead of winter, when you grow up there, you think it's stunning and beautiful. And uh, none of the snow or the cold really affects you because you don't know any different. Uh, but that was that was the problem, the bubble. And as I got older and older, uh, or in my late teens, it felt very claustrophobic. And I, but I didn't understand why. Um, right. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't really put words to it. Um, I was the oldest, so I was competitive with my father. So I felt I needed to leave. But in leaving. I started because I left to be on the U.S. ski team. And what that means is you're suddenly thrown into international territories and you're spending all your time in Europe. And now the whole world is available. You're in France, but Germany and Austria and Italy, everything's right there. And all these people are culturally interacting on a day-to-day basis. I mean, when I was taking Spanish in school, I thought, are you kidding me? How far away is Spain or Mexico? When would I ever have the chance to go there? I mean, that's that's what I thought when I was like 11 years old. And I just thought it was crazy that I had to take Spanish. It was the same thing for me. Like everything seemed so far away. But my brother Peter moved to New York. And so I didn't go to, I'm, look, I was no US champion skier like Frank Bador. And I was no internationally traveled man of mystery like Frank Bador. But I did go to New York City when I was young. And it was so eye-opening because of all of the different, you know, the melting pot, everybody's in one area yeah. mm-hmm. and you're seeing people that sound different and look different. And I mean, they smell different, like everything is different. Yeah. And that was, that was a big eye-opening thing. Two things I want to say though. One, it's definitely a bubble, but I'm not saying that negatively necessarily, because look, we live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is some kind of bubble. You know what I mean? It's just very different. Um, cause I got friends back home. I don't want them to listen to this and think that I'm knocking, knocking Eagle, Michigan. Eagle, Michigan's terrific. It's just Eagle, Michigan. There's a lot of other things out there. Yeah. And I'm not saying the place is the bubble. I'm saying the mindset is the bubble. Um, because, uh, you know, by its very nature, it's a, a smaller community. It's more uh, insulated. And, uh, you know, it. I think there was one, when I was in grade school, there was one, african-american girl and that had to be rough for her and uh yeah and it was you know i i remember thinking she was so interesting and and so curious about her um and so when i say a bubble i i just i just i think about it also creatively because what i'm really curious to hear from you is how you took the passion and the interest for all these pop culture mediums that you were engaging with and how that propelled you to want to have a career and then to come up with whatever plan, which I'd like you to tell us about, to come out to Los Angeles. (laughs) I don't know that I had a great plan. Um, What happened was I was in college. I was in college for public relations and I interned at a place called the Concept Farm in New York City and entered as a PR intern there. My brother had actually, um, he lived in New York for a while. He did some like off-Broadway acting and some commercial acting and a little bit of modeling and stuff like that. He's a big, handsome six foot four looking fella. And uh, so I would visit him there and then he did a commercial for that company and then got me an internship there. And I went there and at this point I was always interested in writing, but I thought writers were like unicorns. They were like these things that were born 
You were born to be a writer. I didn't realize it was a tradecraft. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I didn't realize that it was just hard work. It was blue collar. Like it, writing is 100% blue collar. Like people don't think of it that way, but you grind when you do this. It's exhausting. And that was something that I had a great example of growing up. My brother, Jake, the farmer, my dad, the farmer, my mom, everybody worked hard. So I go to this, this, this place called the Concept Farm and I'm on the top floor. And then a floor below is like where they do more of the creative production stuff. So I'm down there one day and I'm talking to this guy and I find out he's the guy who writes copy for the, the spelling, ESPN spelling bee commercials or something like that. And I was like, you've gotta be effing kidding me. This guy, nothing wrong with this guy, but I couldn't believe this guy was the unicorn. Like I was like, this guy's not a unicorn, he's a donkey. Like this doesn't make any sense. And so that was like the first time I realized like, oh, you just have to choose to do this thing. Mm. Because it had always been, writing had always been like a confluence of all of my interests, mm-hmm. whether it's fantasy, science fiction, even like sports. I did a little bit of sports writing at one point. Like, cause I, I'm big into like basketball and, and like nerdy things like professional wrestling and like all sorts of stuff like that. And I just started to realize like, I've always been gravitated to to story specifically and character specifically through games and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I have these stories playing with my my cousins, John and Ben, where we get all our GI Joes out and we'd all pick the GI Joes we wanted and we pick the vehicles we wanted. And then you do like your little GI Joe mission and they'd have the good guys kill all the bad guys in five minutes. And that was it. I'd be over here. I'd have these cars all set up in a line like they're moving like a Mad Max chase. The bad guys would have killed all but one of the good guys. He would have captured the robot the bad guys had, reprogrammed him. Together they would have fought back. Yada, it was like 30 minute long, like Mad Max epic. <laughs> and my cousins were just sitting here watching me like, this kid is weird. <laughs> I was like seven years old. Yeah. This is just what I want to do because I saw Road Warrior. And wow. I was like, well, G.I. Joe is basically Road Warrior. Let's go. Um, and so I'd always was doing it, you know, like my friend, Mark and I, who i mentioned before, we created our own paper and pencil role play game based off of this, this video game called Shining Force that we loved. Um, I used to, when I would mow the lawn, which I hated doing, but I would mow the lawn, this thing happens where like muscle memory takes over and your mind just drifts or whatever it is. And I remember writing like this super long X-Men epic in my mind. And then three years later, come to find out that Age of Apocalypse was basically what I was thinking of. It's this very popular X-Men storyline. I didn't know anything about it. And I was just like, oh, it'd be great if you know, wow. it's the world and yada, yada, yada. Not to say that I'm like smarter than that. I mean, somebody had that idea, but it was just like, that's where my mind was always going was like these worlds and these characters and all of that kind of stuff. So I saw this guy at the concept farm was like, oh my God, that's a writer. What the heck? Got back too late to change my degree, uh, graduated with my degree, then turned around and got into film school at um, Grand Valley, which has got a decent film program in, in, in Michigan. Not a big school, whatever. I met with this guidance counselor, told myself I'd never forget his name, absolutely forgot his name. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Guidance counselor guy, you were awesome. And he sat down and he's like, why do you want to go to film school? Because I already had a degree. And I was like, oh, I want to be a writer. And he's like, look, you're going to be in school with a bunch of 18-year-olds. You're going to waste a bunch of money here. If you really want to try this, you should just move to Hollywood. So my then girlfriend, now wife, I come back out to the car. And after doing this, we were going to look for apartments in Grand, Grand Rapids. Can I swear in this podcast yeah. or no? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we come back out to the car and I'm like, she's like, so how'd it go? And I was like, he told me to move to Hollywood. That was not on the, the <laughs> on the radar. Stage, right. And my wife was like, her girlfriend then was like, well, what are we going to do? We we're going to move to this town. We we're going to live near that guy, Mark, I was mentioning. It was like going to be a fun little thing where our couple friends post college and we figured life out or whatever. And I was like, I don't know, what should we do? And my wife was like, fuck it, let's move to Hollywood. 
<laughs> that, no, no really... wonder you married her. Not very many Seriously. girlfriends would say, fuck it, let's move to Hollywood on a whim of oh, your yeah. writing career. So, good, and, I, and by good... the way, at that point, I had written one screenplay. It was god-awful. Don't ever want to, no, no, no one should ever see this thing. Uh, as all, by the way, all your first work should be absolutely embarrassing to you once you get good at something, but, um, or, or good enough at something. I don't want to toot my own horn. Um, but so we got in, a, in two cars. My mom drove with us, drove us three days, you know, went through Utah and all that kind of stuff, came here, stayed at her uncle's boyfriend's house in Palm Springs, drove two hours into LA looking for work. She got a job working like a chiropractic office. We got our first apartment, which our monthly rent was larger than any bill we'd ever paid before. I started out doing, um, I just wanted to get on set. So I was looking for PA work. I did background work or whatever. Um, and then eventually I got a job at a bar and then we kind of settled in where it was like, okay, I write six to eight hours a day, five days a week, work at the bar three, four days a week at night. She started going back to school and we just built it. We built a life that way. It took us a while. I met you after maybe a year, six, seven, eight months. You know, I met you and like two other guys who somehow I got work. It was crazy. Um, and I just fell on my face over and over and over again and got crushed by the boulder, pushing up the hill like Sisyphus until I figured it out, I guess. See, I love doing this podcast because, you know, I, I, I know you. Uh, we've done a lot of work together. You've done some great uh, scripts and projects together, but I didn't know that story. That's very specific story about, you know, what your wife said and the courage and the that you both showed to to just hit the road, make the commitment and see what happens. And, you know... Th- there's different versions of that story. That story is told often, yeah, but to nice. land and to find your way and to um, to be unencumbered by the sort of daunting task, uh, ignorance, ignorance is bliss. But that's being 20, yeah. whatever you're Which is great though. Telling. I mean, that's, that, that's the reason to do it. That's the time to do it. My dad thought I'd be back in two weeks. You know what I mean? And he then did? If, and if I would have gotten his basement, you know, I lived in his basement until I figured out the next thing. What you know did what he mean? say? Tell me what he said to you. Well, he literally said, I thought you'd be back in two weeks. <laughs> that, that was after, after the first thing happened, I got my first job or whatever it was, you know, he was, he was like, actually, so the first thing that ever happened to me, we got this thing. I answered a Craigslist posting because that was a thing that you used to do. Wow. For a massage? <laughs> No, not for a <laughs> um, uh, you, you just go to any corner store for that. Right? Come on. Uh, but uh, and it was to PA on this short film called Burying the X, which was later turned into a movie starring the late Anton Yelkin. And in my first time ever being on set, I worked like 55 hours in three days for no money. I was I, I lay I laid in an open grave, pressing up on a box like I was a person coming to life. Um, I talked to a guy at the graveyard and distracted him so that we could do pickup shots places we were not supposed to. We, I got uh, the police almost put me in handcuffs because they didn't understand why we were outside this restaurant late at night. This was all my first time ever being anywhere on a movie set. And then at the end of it, they put me in the thing because they wanted a guy in this scene. And I was like, I am not a performer. I'm not an actor, nothing like that. But I was, I don't know, as, as tall as the lead, who was this guy, John Francis Daly. And then they made me deliver a line. And like it all happened in like, the, and I don't know whatever happened with the short film. It's I can't even find it on the internet, I don't think. But it all happened in like the first weekend. It was all just like these only in Hollywood stories. Okay, what you know? was the first line? What was the line? The only line. Um, I, so this guy thinks that my girlfriend, John Francis Daly's character thinks that my girlfriend is this girl he's meeting on a blind date. And so he like starts talking to her and I walk up like a jerk, which this is hilarious because I weigh like, a, at this time I weigh like 135 pounds. <laughs> and I threaten the guy, and I'm six foot one. And I threaten the guy, I'm like, can I help you? No, 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 no. Can I help you? 
that's it. <laughs> you never forget the first line. There's a there's a story about John Francis Daly. I don't know if we'll use this or not because he's he's a he's a he's a nice guy. But I I had something happen to me with him that I now have perspective on. Did the whole thing. Didn't know anybody in Hollywood. So I like said like, hey man, you know, love to get a movie with you or something like that sometime. And he gave me his number. Then I called his number. It wasn't his number. It was either not his number or he just was. He was blowing you off. I was always, huh? Yeah, he was blowing you off, you thought? Yeah, and I always chat my ass about that. I was like, oh, big Hollywood guy. And he's huge now. He just directed the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Um, he's a director, writer, producer, actor, everything. Anyways, years later, when I become friends with people who are in the industry and some people who are sort of famous and all that kind of stuff, I realized like, no, 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 I don't blame that guy. Because he knew part of the reason why I wanted to hang out with him is because I wanted him to help my career very innocently. But he probably got that all the time yeah you can't when you're at a certain level of fame or a certain level of access in this industry i didn't know this then but i appreciate it now like you are it's so hard to do this job and get in that you don't know if people really like you or not right and so you know i thought about it years later and i was like yeah i don't think i would have called that or answered that guy's phone call either so, <laughs> you know I mean? nobody so well you uh you tell the story that you were upset with me as well uh because mm -hmm. i didn't get right back to you uh having met you uh, when we were, I was taking my kid to a, uh, a bowling birthday party and, mm -hmm. uh, you were working behind, how'd you get that job? By the way, working behind the desk at a bowling alley. I met a guy playing basketball at LA fitness, which by the way, great place to meet people in Hollywood. I met yeah. several people who ended up mattering to my career at that place. So I'd play basketball there like three, four days a week just to stay in shape. And cause I love basketball and, um, his friend worked at the bar and I was like, I'm looking for a job. So that guy got me that job there. And then I was a waiter originally, but that business was changing and they ended up moving me behind the shoe desk, which was kind of like a, almost like a customer service position, but also kind of a floor manager position. Anyways, I took it because my agreement with the manager at the time was like, I'm bringing my laptop because if I'm gonna sit here during the day, yada, 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 cause normally I'd be home writing and I'd be waiting tables at night. I gotta bring this so I can work. So when you walked in, you saw me editing a really horrible script or something like that. That was an early thing that I was trying. And that's how you and I connected. I think your then girlfriend like was like, you should talk to this kid, to be honest. I think she like probably took pity on me because I had like a script out. I was red. No, like, no, 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 it, oh, well, okay. no, it wasn't that. Um, no, it, you know, because ultimately after we met, I did, I did hire you to, uh, to write something for me. So you know, I was just getting in the mindset of, oh, I wonder if I can find some folks that might be interested in writing these comics that I had been considering. And generally, I, I don't reach out uh, to somebody that's working in a coffee shop or something like that. But it, yeah, I mean, you know, but if, I, and I remember for a moment, almost hesitating, like, should I really ask him? But I, I'm just going to ask. So when I asked what you were working on and, and you told me, um, and there was just something authentic and maybe it was a Midwest vibe that I picked up on and, yeah. you know, and that started the conversation and, and, and then you tell the story much better than I do because I didn't know what was going on in your mind until right. you wrote that blog for me, which uh, was very funny uh, in terms of what you thought, what was going on in your mind versus what was going on in my mind. So you probably thought I was a little more seasoned than I was because I don't know, maybe I came off that way somehow and I didn't know who the hell you were. Yeah. Like, 
back back then working at that place in Hollywood, people came in all the time. And honestly, a lot of the staff would like, if they didn't know someone was, they would Google. She'd be like, oh, is this someone in the industry? Like, because everybody's desperate in Hollywood that way. But then you told me, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, yada, yada. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're a writer, whatever. Like, wasn't, you know, I don't know where my mind was. And then I like pieced it together. I was like, oh, what are you doing? Don't be an idiot. And so, because I needed mentors. I needed access. I needed all sorts of things. I didn't know my elbow from my ass. Yeah. You know? So, you know, you you came in and we talked back and forth. And then, um, you know, they, people who are interested in this story, can I don't want to tell the whole thing that's on yeah. the website. You read the blog. But essentially, you gave me a business card. And I was like, holy shit, a business card. Well, that's what's so funny to me because, you know, just your reaction now. I, I, I mean, I remember having business cards, but no one gives out business cards really anymore. But I no. do remember carrying them once in a while. I kept a few in my wallet every once. Uh, and so it just made me chuckle that, that that was a thing that ended up, as you called it, leveling up. Oh, man. <laughs> business cards, was they were my existence because... This industry, and I don't, I don't, again, people can read the, the, the article or the, the blog post, but like, there is no ladder. There is nothing makes sense. There's no one way to do it. Right. And so when you get something tangible, when someone says like, hey man, call me, you know, like that kind of thing, that is sometimes all you have, all you're hanging on to, to be like, yeah. I'm not wasting my early twenties. I'm not moving away from my family who I love and they're great to do this because I'm, you know, because by the way, there are tons of people who come out here to do a thing, say they're going to do it and never do it. And then they're here for like 10 years and then they turn around, they leave with nothing. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the, the sirens in the Odyssey or whatever, where like you end up on this rock. The next thing you know, you're an old man, like LA Hollywood can do that to you. Yeah. Um, and so it was a way for me to be like, Hey, you're, 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 you're working, you're, you're, you're trying, you're, you know, I could talk to, you know, people back home and say like, Oh, I just met so-and-so and I'm trying to do this thing. So the reason why I was mad at you is because um, I sent you, uh, so I, you, you asked me about comic books. I told you I was working on, on one, which I just happened to be working on because of a guy I met playing basketball. And so I, uh, I ended up taking that comic book and dropping it at your office, which was at the, the Samsung building. Right? Yeah, that's right. I'm Wilshire. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, going up there, this giant castle, I'm like, go to the castle. I got to climb the stairs because the wizard's up there. Frank the door. Like, so. Oh my God. What an exaggeration. But okay, I'll take it. Go ahead. No, man, your bio says world creator and literary sleuth. It might as well say wizard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Not to bust your balls. Uh, But anyway, so I'm climbing the castle, you know, the castle stairs or whatever. And I get there and I put my hand on the door handle. I'm going to turn the handle. I'm like, I'm going to talk to this guy and charm the shit out of him. It's locked. You weren't even in the office that day. So I had to slide it underneath there with like a note, like yeah. bowling, bowling alley guy says hi. <laughs> bowling alley guy. I remember that too. Oh, fuck. The bowling, the bowling alley sure. guy is sending like, me stuff. I can't stuff. believe this guy actually followed up. <laughs> um, so, but anyways, the worst part about that was I just slid it under your door. And that was it. I had like an email address and it was like, did he read it? Did he even get it? Yeah. Did his assistant step on it and throw it away? You yeah. know, like, I don't know. And so the reason why I was getting frustrated is because early on you're clinging to these opportunities. And I had ran, I think in the, in the blog, I said like fast and hard in the wrong direction. I did a lot of that because when you're starting out, especially there's so many people who are bullshitters. And, and this goes back to like Eagle, Michigan. So I'm sorry, I keep hitting my mic. So, um, I didn't know because I grew up in a small town. You know, my, my well-known family in that town, my dad was a businessman, hired a lot of locals, worked with a bunch of people who were landowners. Everything was a handshake. If you didn't do what you said you were going to do, you were screwed. There yeah. goes your reputation. It could not be more different in Los Angeles. Yeah. 
I didn't understand that someone could lie to your face and not do what they said they were going to do. Yeah, that was that was shocking to me as well, because my father was exactly the same way. And it really took me a long time. Really, it's still it still startles me. I still underestimate, um, you know, the need for the deep set of paperwork. And that still doesn't help. But no, I know. I mean, you still can end up in a lawsuit because it's and also, by the way, if something becomes more successful, then suddenly people remember what you talked about differently. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like everything is, but, but anyways, so I had fallen on my face or not really fallen on my face. It was all goodwill on my part, but I had worked and done things and taken meetings like with just jokers, just people who didn't matter. People who said they did this and said they did that because I didn't know, I, I think I said this already, but I didn't know a single person in the state of California, let alone somebody in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So I, it was just me. And by the way, my wife, not interested in the entertainment industry at all. She's a, she's a saint. She works in public health. She's a nutritionist. She works for food banks. She's sitting here talking about zombies and dragons and stuff. And she's out (laughs) saving. No. So I didn't know anybody. And I also didn't have like a partner in the entertainment industry, which by the way is also great sometimes because then you, your frustrations don't overlap. Um, so with you, you know, I dropped the thing off and I knew you, and at this point I knew exactly who you were. You know, I, I had already like, you know, read books and things like that. It read, read, uh, I think maybe I hadn't read the first looking glass wars yet, but I knew who you were and I knew it primarily from there's something about Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with you not getting back to me, it was probably the exact same time that a bunch of other things weren't working out. And I was like, Oh, here we go again. Here we go mm-hmm. again. And anybody who's a young writer who listens to this, that's, that's totally normal. Don't be deterred. But also what I did next is also totally, totally normal. I kept following up. Yeah. I thought like two or three times, I probably should have just never stopped following up, but I told myself, no joke, that I'm not following up again. Because I think at that point, I just had other people not get back to me. And that was the part of the story where it's like, I followed up with you and you emailed me back in like three minutes. And it wasn't like a, hey man, I got it, I'll get back to you. It's like, hey, come into my office, I might have a job for you. Which right. at that point, I was like, oh, what? I done <laughs> right. well, things, things prior. That's because I had read it and I really liked it. And then I thought, oh, I'm gonna hire this guy. This is going to, this could really work out. Um, and uh, and then you know you you came into the office and we started chatting. Did I ask you at the time when you came in if you were a fan of Alice in Wonderland or what your introduction to Alice was or if you had any interest? No matter what you would have asked me, I would have said yes. <laughs> I don't remember. Very smart. Yeah, yeah, but I'm pretty sure no matter what I said yes. If that question came up, I don't know how it couldn't have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had, at that point, I, I knew who you were and what you were about, you know, as best I could from the internet and from like, you know, going to book. I think I actually bought one of your books in a bookstore. That's how oh, long okay. ago this was. Okay, thanks. Um, so wait, yeah. after all of the 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 stories and the, all of the, the games and the books you were reading, where, if anywhere, does Alice in Wonderland fit? It doesn't sound like your kind of story based on the action and the Dungeons and Dragons, but that doesn't mean... I could be wrong. So I think that maybe this is different than a lot of the guests you have on here, because I'm sure a lot of people are like, Alice was like it for me. It wasn't. I was aware of it. I saw the Disney cartoon. I knew the characters. I'd seen the Tom Petty music video. You know, like I was aware of it in pop culture and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it wasn't like I was some person who's going to get a Cheshire cat tattoo, you know, anything like that. Like I knew the story. I'd seen it several times, uh, the movie, and I had not read the book. You know what? You know what? I think that's what we did talk about because, um, you know, I was always asking and, 
you know, I could have an answer for either way. If you loved Alice, I could say you're going to love my book. It takes a spin on it and it, it tries to honor but carve out its own space. If you didn't like the book, you weren't aware of it, this is a whole new world with jumping off places from Alice in pop culture. You don't have to have ever read the book and you're going to understand what it is. Of course you have two takes on it. You're a good pitch man. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it works. Um, Yeah, so maybe we were honest with each other in that room, Frank. I'd like to think that we were honest, that I was like, man, I don't know. I'll do whatever. And you were like, hey, you know what? Fine. It's a long time ago. I mean, selective uh, memory. We can, we can, we and you know, this is my podcast. We can come up with whatever. You can say whatever. I mean, look, you can edit this out if you want. I mean, we could romanticize it and make it seem like, oh my God, we had this amazing conversation about that or whatever. You were like, yeah, this kid's going to be cheap. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Definitely knew you were going to be cheap. Well, I, look, I had a set fee. It was $500, and you can take as much time. You can pick the story, so it's going to be your creativity. Here's all I need. I need Hatter in the story, and I need to feel like, I, like I'm into it. Now, what was— Did you have any idea you were going to get a story about baseball? Well, yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was going to go. I had no idea that I was going to get a sports story. I certainly didn't think I was going to get a baseball story. And what I what piqued my interest was that, okay, all right, all right, motherfucking baby writer, how are you going to introduce Hatter into a baseball story with any logic at all? Let me, let me, with baseball action, um, and you did a, you did a very, very good job of him finding his way uh, onto this team and him demanding to know where the lost princess was. And one of the, I don't know if it was the coach or one of his teammates said, oh, there, there's, you're going to have plenty of time to talk to your female friends or fans yeah. out there. Just get dressed. Yeah, yeah. They basically confused him for like some like schmuck who played on a team that like was like the guy who stood in right field. He looked like that guy. And, the, and the, but but the, the but the thing was you played into the you played into the fish out of water, but in a little bit of a like a, a awkward way for him. Like I'm used to being this imposing figure, and if you threaten me, I'm gonna take you out. So don't do it. So that's you know, that's the usual we're going to meet Hatter. Somebody underestimates him, and then he shows his skills. But in your case, you're introducing him to the, the pastime, American's pastime, and he is a fish out of water the entire time. Yeah. Um, and he's just trying to keep up. And there's a promise of the princess, and we have this, these baseball scenes, and, and I absolutely loved it. And I think you wrote I can't remember. It was really long, a lot longer than the $500 justified. That's for sure. Originally, you know, you, you had seen a comic book script for me, but that was not something I had scripted in comic book formatting. So what I get, it's in the, again, it's in the blog, but I wrote something that was like this weird, like sort of short story prosy thing. And you were like, "I, I like this what the hell is this? Like, go do it right. And then I had to go get, do they see the video from this podcast or not? Uh, we've never I done that, was... but this is so clean. We might, we might pull some of this. So go ahead. All right. Well, I, so, oh, so I'm not going to go there now. Now, now I've deflated the whole moment okay. on my shelf is still the, you know, how to write comic books for fucking morons like that book, <laughs> or, book or whatever. I went and got that thing. It was like, oh, I got to format this thing for Frank Bedore because he wants to, <laughs> he wants to make this thing. And, um, that's what it was. But that was, that was honestly, when I wrote that, it was the, my wife's favorite thing that I had written up to that point. Mm. Oh, that's, so that's very charming. Like, 
Yeah, and she liked the end of it where it was like, you know, look, he doesn't find her, but he sees how the crowd is so into baseball that like, if if this can exist on Earth, maybe she is safe. Yeah. You know, because it captivated their imaginations, the audience. So it had a little button on it that was pretty cute. And like you're saying, the fish out of water and all that. And um, and I yeah, put an cool. artist on it and it became a real thing. And I don't know how much you showed that off. When, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. in that. Exactly. Yeah. Seeing... Yeah. But but it took a while for it to come out. So I had like a digital copy of it. And I like I was like, what? I can't show it to anybody. Oh, okay. that's true. I mean, yeah. Which not to fast forward to now, but like that happens sometimes in Hollywood. We're like, you know, you work on something. It doesn't see the light of day until, you know, four years later. Yeah, I was and I was really strict about that because I was trying to find the right sequence to to put it out there. And also I had had an experience with Ben Templesmith um, in terms of uh, in terms of scheduling issues. And so when I had Sammy on to do the art, I was trying to get way ahead of the the release dates and and I wasn't quite sure when I was going to finish that. And I think Liz and I were trying to finish um, uh, volume five. So, yeah, but OK, cool. Liz. Liz, I, I got to meet her a couple of times. She was great. Yeah. So let me ask you something else because um, we also worked on a heist movie, and you you seem to be pretty enamored with spies and heist movies because we we did two heist movies together that we worked on, and in the Crossfire graphic novel. By the way, I was just flipping through it before before you came on, and I love that book so much and it's the look and feel of that book okay let's just look the 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 cover is spectacular that's that's vincent prose right vincent prose i mean i love love the cover but inside sammy the tone the tone of the the color palette is really spectacular and then what that's yes. The, the, you're showing a right yeah. Now. We'll we'll post yeah. this up. But you did a really great job on the paneling and pulling out um, uh, moments of action and suspense, which goes to this question that I'm asking you um, about heist movies and spy uh, thrillers. Where was the inspiration? I know for our first movie idea was Point Break or Triple uh, X because we wanted to do an extreme sports heist yeah. movie idea. We um, essentially wrote the, the remake of Point Break and then that came out. So yes, that's what we were. That's what, yes, yeah. that's what happened. We got, we got, yeah. we got, uh, once again, down. once again, we got, you know, too slow. So I think we talked about this last time where it's like, you know, I'd rather be 20% luckier and have better timing and 50% less talented. <laughs> No, 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 seriously, put a horseshoe up my ass, please. Um, <laughs> so just tell me a little bit about heist movies. Where did... I mean, the thing about them is it's genre, right? So genre is great because genre film, the wonderful thing about genre film is also the thing that some people hate about it, which is that it can be somewhat formulaic. But when you can get into the meta of it, then it becomes a lot of fun. So the second of the two heist films we did is, I, I, don't, I can't give too much away, away from this, plus neither of us own it, but um, you know, it was essentially telling the audience it was one film, one heist film, and using all of the structure and all of that stuff to subvert the audience because it was actually another film. And so the structure of genre films, whether it's horror or uh, crime thriller, like that Reap So, that thing you read, that, that's, that does all the crime thriller stuff. 
but it's really a character-driven drama. Hmm. It's using all that to distract yeah. you in a way where you think you know what the movie is. And so that's what I really like about genre. We didn't get to do as much with that in these books because we were introducing so much stuff, but we did enough of it. But when it comes to the film, the books were that way. When it comes to the films that we did, especially the second one, the thing that really I really liked about it was it gives you a different set of tools because the audience has such expectations. Expectations such, for the genre, they, and, yeah. And it's the type of film where like they want to outthink you. They want to be ahead of it. Like how many annoying people do you watch a movie with and they're like, I know it's going to end. I know it's going to end. Yeah. Well, I'm one of those people because I'm a writer. But people who aren't writers, it's annoying. People who are writers, it's really annoying. But anyways, you can you can sort of um, you can trick the audience. You can you can right. play their expectations off of them, and it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. And especially if it works, because at the end of the day, if it works, you as a writer feel good, and the audience feels even better because yeah. everyone likes to be tricked. But what what I liked about the uh, second story that we've developed, it hasn't been made yet into a movie, but uh, it's the father son aspect of it, and grounding it in something very universal, and especially the tension between you know a, a son trying to live up to the expectation of a larger than life father figure who's very good at his job and and what he does and not dissimilar to how we started this conversation about your your two brothers and your dad and um and you well, know your I, dad was a larger than life wild man wasn't yeah he? my he, like, dad was across yeah, the country and everything yeah, yeah he he really was and he really dominated when he threw parties and in any in any social environment you know that was, was my dad too yeah, yeah so bunion-esque character i have this this video of him he dug his own lakes by hauling gravel and selling all of it. Mm -hmm. And there's one point where he's on an excavator on this little island of dirt. And I have a video of this and he's swinging the bucket in and he's tearing apart the part of the land that's gonna merge two of these, these lakes into one large lake. And he gets like stuck and it looks like he could die. It looks like the machine could fall in. He's just happy as a clam, having a great time. There's a crowd of people like losing their minds, ooing and aahing, is he doing this? And he's just doing it. Right. Like, no big deal. And then he's kind of showboating, you know, like that right. kind of thing. Like. The apple could not have fallen further from the tree. <laughs> yeah, I'm the opposite. My I, I fell close to the tree, but uh, in uh, but lots of different reasons. Anyway, that, that, heist, that heist movie is fun. Someone should make that movie. It's not that expensive. I think it's. I, I know I have like a little bit of a kicker in my contract on that whole thing. I'm not even talking from a money standpoint. It's just a lot of fun. You yeah, know what I mean, like it's light fair. It's fun. It's genre. It's tricky. Like. Yeah, you Somebody. did a you, you did a great job. I mean, you're you're really good at genre. You're also really good at uh, world creation, um, and I think you know no, understanding your background uh, and the, the games that you were inventing on your own. It's self evident, having worked with you now, why you're so 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 good at that, and um, and which is why I think the um, the cross the Crossfire and Underfire. One of the reasons I wanted to work with you on both of these is you're right. There was a lot of story to get out, a lot of concepts that I wanted to set up. I wanted to lay some foundation. Um, but what the revelation of Crossfire was the character that you came up with, which is Ovid, which is a former milliner who is basically now you know, a spy, or I think we used to call him the James Bond of Wonderland. Uh, is, yeah. And, and, and the first opening scene, he is going, it's a heist part of the story. So, um, and it looks but like of course, the payoff is not exactly what 
the heist is supposed to be. And not what, it, what's to be expected, but you feel like you're in Mission Impossible, but it turns out that it's more impossible than they thought. I mean, at that point, you were you you had done such a great job with the books, but there was a lot of pieces of Alice in Wonderland that you hadn't really, I mean, this was my take on it, anyways, correct me if I'm wrong, that you felt like you, you wanted to do things with. It was the chessmen, it was the house of cards, it was uh, the Griffin character. Like there was a lot of characters that you hadn't, placed in your world yet. And at the same time, you were also expanding to like the Borderlands and Morgavia and like all of these places. So to me, that was just like, you know, fuel on the fire. Like I was like, yeah, baby, let's go. But, you know, we we had a limited amount of real estate because comic books is a limited amount of space on the page, limited amount of pages. So it's it's challenging that way. Um, I, I think found it, each I, one of those could have been its own book, to be honest, each one of those chapters. I, I agree with you, but I also agree that it was challenging. I also agree that we probably put m- more in uh, in both of those books than you know we we needed to. Uh, but I I found it I found what you did successfully was just you know and what happens in comics is you drop in on a page. Yeah. And, you know, you might get the stamp of the location and then there's, you know, there's dialogue, uh, balloon bu- uh, bubbles, dialogue bubbles, and then you're sort of like, okay, where is this going? Um, and so you have to, re- you really have to be mindful of the art and how the panels are helping communicate and what's between the panels so that the, it's, it's sparking the reader's imagination. And you, you did that really successfully. Um, so... Thank it's a you different for the- muscle than screenwriting, which it- is how I started. Like it's the, the mediums. I, mean, I think I mentioned this when we were prepping for, for our talk. Like, you know, comics are not screen screenplays. Screenplays are not novels. There's a different thing. All of it has to do with pacing. They all have their own limitations, that kind of thing. And so it, it can be challenging. In the case of that, um, the scope, especially in the last chapter where the invasion is happening, you're, you know, there's like 10 different fronts. You know what I mean? Like the, the army's invading, you're dealing with the pawns and the rooks and the knights and all these different places and Alice and you're jump, going jumping from scene to scene to scene to scene. Whereas the chapter with Ovid, it's basically POV from him. Right. Whole, he's in every single scene, you know what I mean? So it's, they each have their own challenges that way. And also for someone working on the book, like Sammy, it's not always the easiest thing in the world to have these big macro pullback shots and where you're trying to establish so much in one static image Whereas, you know, if it was a movie, you'd be panning across and you'd be punching in and doing all of these things. So it's just a different story vehicle. It, it has challenges. I'm glad you, you, it ended up working Well, what, what was great is that you set up the stakes. So we, we got the stakes from, um, you know, Alice's uh, husband. So we have the, and, and we're using Borderland and we're introducing the tribes, which we're actually putting into action, which was awesome. Um, and then we understand where Alice is at. And then when you drop into Ovid, the reason that 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 scene or that chapter is so effective is because it's it's smaller. It's it's a character driven. It's his relationship with somebody in our world. So you still get the balance of being in Wonderland back to our world. So it mirrors what I did in Looking Glass Wars. And then yet at the end, you still pull off this epic battle that plays into when you were a kid taking, you know, you know, doing the Mad Max stuff. Um, and that comes through. So I, I'm seeing all these muscles working uh, in in this book, which was the most fully realized. Uh, I know in Under Fire, we had a lot less real estate and we, you know, and again, you did a really good job of focusing on the House of Cards and giving us the team, the dirty dozen team of card soldiers and giving them all certain particular um, specialties 
and uh and- that was one of my favorite things when you were looking to adapt i was like the house of cards is a fantasy version of gi joe like i mean yeah. that was like the quick it's change it's not exactly that because there's more going on it's not just like a direct translation of gi joe i don't sound like i'm just a copycat artist over here but like the idea of them each having their own rank their number and their symbol they clearly could be specialists and so the idea that that develop from there which i really like is the idea that like you deal yourself the hand you need to win the game yeah like, that's what the house of cards is you build the hand if we i think the joke in there is like oh you're stacking the deck yeah but that's the idea and the customization of that we even do i think eight panels of it it's like a video game selection screen like that's that's where that comes from from my childhood there was an actual gi joe video game side scroller 16-bit or 18-bit i think 16-bit where you know you had like five different joes and it was like, okay, I'm gonna use this Joe on this level, I'm gonna use this Joe on this level. And I was like, it just made too much sense to me that that's what the House of Cards would be. And then when you said you wanna do Dirty Dozen, it was like, oh yeah, let's slap a bunch of misfits into this whole thing and go from there. Yeah, um, and, that, and, that, and that was really, and, and, there's, and then we started to think about all the stories that we could build out from there. Okay. And, uh, and it sort of becomes endless, like G.I. Joe or Magic of the Gathering. Um, also, it, it, it definitely has that game mechanic in the graphic novel it's like oh if you could touch and feel this with cards and little um figurines oh, y- y- right yeah. it's a hundred percent i mean like I, I don't know where where the level of success with it in terms of like comics would have to be but it's already a game in my head you know what i mean like it's already it is exactly that it's like magic the gathering meets gi joe i mean it's it's you have this 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 paramilitary element and then you have the customization of building a deck like in magic the gathering um, and that's, that should show through with, with the work that I did on it. Um, I would play that game. Yeah. And you know, the thing about working with you, uh, on, on this, and even in this conversation is, um, you know, I get really excited. Like, I know you do. like we should, we should <laughs> like, let's just keep building this thing out. And, um, because there's, there's so much, there's such a strong, um, story engine and the characters, and the world creation aspects that you brought to the Looking Glass Wars really expanded the possibilities, not just in Crossfire and Underfire, but you also assisted me with, um, you know, Hatter Madigan and Ghost in the Hatbox when I was starting to think about, well, what is a four-year school life at the millinery? And, you know, that was something that you just went, oh, uh, put up my hand. I'll run with that. I have a few ideas, and yeah, you know, I, think I wrote you like a thirty-page <laughs> freshman to senior year, and then with like two like like undergraduate years or so, it was like six years or something like that. And look, the thing about that that's cool is that I did all that work, but maybe only like 20 percent of it made it into the book, and a lot of it got changed. But that's how it works. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why you do the development work. Yeah. Um. You know, it yeah. starts to take on a life its own. The story needs something different. You got to drop this thing. Um. But, but you would be excited about stuff that that was the that's been the one thing through line with people I've worked with like the the showrunners Ethan Rafe and Sally Boris that I have a project with they when they've they've written like letters for me and things like that before they always talk about like my passion for it and that's kind of going all the way back to what we, we talked about like the origin story type thing once I figured out what writing was it was the only thing because that was the one thing in my life that I was really passionate about because everything just fit and so when I have a conversation like this with you this is all I want to do all the time Curtis, 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 Curtis. This has been such a pleasure, but we have so much more to talk about. Hey, will you do me a favor? Will you come back next week and can we do a part two? That sounds great. Oh, very good. Well, on that, thank you. And uh, we'll talk soon, my friend. Bye.